Welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. Before we get started today, I wanted to share some exciting news with you. We now have a website. At retrofittedpodcast.com, you can listen to and download all the episodes of the show, plus catch up on the latest blog posts and let me know what you think. An Instagram account and Pinterest page are also in the works, so there's even more to come. The podcast is still also available on Apple, Amazon, Audible, Spotify, and Stitcher. Now let's get down to business. Today's episode was actually written by the request of an old, let's not say old, let's say former, former colleague from college named Maggie. It has definitely been the messiest and arguably most problematic and difficult subject matter so far this season, but leave it to a fellow English major to set forth a challenge like that. Maggie, I hope you appreciate my efforts to sort through this train wreck of a tale. Today's song was, appropriately, written while the band was drinking in the back of a rental van. Members worked together to create the lyrics, some of which were initially too dirty to make it into the final cut. While the song became, and remains, immensely popular, staying on the charts for 17 weeks, it never reached number one, tapping out at number five on the Billboard Hot 100. Surprisingly, for all its popularity, there's no great mythos or origin story surrounding it. It didn't spring forth from any great spiritual awakening or serve as a response to a musician's life challenges. It simply exists because the band members like women. Paradise City by Guns N' Roses was released as a single in January 1989, a full 18 months after its album, Appetite for Destruction, dropped in July of 1987. Maybe this wide gap was because the album didn't cause much of a stir until the year after it was released, when the singles Sweet Child of Mine and Welcome to the Jungle had been released. The combination of explicit rather than implicit sex drugs, and the rock and roll lifestyle was a potent cocktail that Reagan-era American audiences couldn't get enough of. The critics of the time were less impressed, with some dismissing it as either too raunchy and distasteful or a pale imitation of bands like Aerosmith and ACDC. Although the lyrics in Paradise City are not as graphic as some of the other songs on Appetite for Destruction, the album's original artwork, which depicted a semi-nude female figure being assaulted, was so controversial that some retailers refused to carry it. It was then changed to the now-iconic image of the five band members' faces drawn as skulls against the backdrop of a large Celtic cross. Even if you're not a metal fan, you're likely familiar with that image, so it ended up that the change was probably in the band's best interest anyway, and in considerably better taste than the initial cover art. Despite some early criticism, Paradise City remains a fan favorite and is played at every concert, most often as the encore song. It's a piece that has been, for better or worse, burned into our collective subconscious, And because of that, it was pretty easy to associate this song with an individual from the Bible. If we're being honest, there are a lot, 
too many of men in the scriptures who were unable to remain faithful to their wives. Even those with multiple wives or concubines still seem to have a wandering eye, most often leading to family tension or other pretty miserable consequences like, you know, death. That theme, as well as the repeated condemnation of women as sly and conniving temptresses in the Old Testament, is in itself a topic for an entire season or more on this podcast, so I'm not going to dig too deeply into it here. Still, both of these motifs play such large roles in this biblical epic that I simply can't ignore them. Of all the biblical dudes who really, really liked their women— and other men's women, the one who seemed the most appropriate to pair up with Paradise City is none other than the Old Testament's Herculean-level strongman, Samson. Samson is one of those Bible figures that practically everyone has heard of. His name is irrevocably intertwined with that of Delilah, the Philistine woman who is the key to his undoing. But while that undoing is central to the tale, there is so, so much more to the story than sex and long hair. So I'm taking the opportunity today to study that with you. For all his fame, Samson's narrative is relatively short, told in only four chapters in the book of Judges. However, there is a lot of history, culture, betrayal, abuse, and sexuality packed into Judges 13 through 16, so don't think it's a quick, simple read. Samson's epic tale actually starts, as the tales of most epic heroes do, before his birth. An angel appears to his mother, who is barren, and tells her that she will become pregnant and have a son. Then he goes on to give her very specific instructions, not unlike today's ob to avoid alcohol and other forbidden foods, for her child is going to be a little different than the other kids. A side note here. It's interesting to me that the angel speaking on behalf of God implies that what a mother does has a direct impact on her unborn child. I understand that Samson's case is special because of his Nazarite status, which we will discuss in a moment, but it's pretty clear to me that the Lord is acknowledging that whatever mama consumes is ultimately absorbed in some way by the baby growing inside her. Back to the story. Our barren heroine immediately goes back to her husband, Manoah, and relates to him all she has heard. He is so blown away that he doesn't believe her right away and asks God for confirmation, which God delivers because he's God. And this is important. My favorite part of the story, though, is when Manoah and his wife prepare to offer a sacrifice in Thanksgiving, and the angel they had been talking to ascends via the flames of the offering back to heaven. Manoah freaks out, insisting that they're going to die because they've basically seen God. It's his wife who is totally chill in this situation, reminding him that they're not going to die because if they did, all the things the angel promised would not be able to come to pass. And yes, they did eventually have a son named Samson, whom the scriptures say in Judges 13.25 that the Spirit of God began to stir or move him. And that is actually the least complicated part of the story. The account jumps ahead, and the next time we see Samson, he's a young adult, demanding that his father secure for him as a wife a sexy Philistine lady he saw hanging around a place called Timnah. Already we've got some red flags. 
Samson's lineage was from the tribe of Dan, and he lived in Judah. He was an Israelite, a Hebrew. His people were being oppressed by the Philistines, so why was he hanging in a Philistine city checking out Philistine chicks? It's important to pause here. I've heard about people misusing scripture to promote things like segregation and opposition to mixed-race marriages. Please understand that while there are many instances, such as Deuteronomy 7.34, in which God instructs Israelites not to marry foreigners, it has nothing to do with race and everything to do with religion. The Philistines, Egyptians, Babylonians, and other tribal nations surrounding Israel were places of idol worship and in some cases, sacred prostitution and child sacrifice. According to Mosaic law, Samson should have been looking to marry a fellow Israelite, and even better if he could marry within his own tribe. Samson was a Nazarite. Those who take a Nazarite vow are set apart for God. Samson's whole life was supposed to set an example of obedience for others. A Nazarite was not to consume any products made from grapes, including wine, nor was he or she, because women were permitted to take Nazarite vows, to cut the hair on the head. Lastly, the Nazarite had to ensure that he or she refrained from touching a human corpse, even that of a loved one. And here was Samson, an Israelite, fully ready to smash through Mosaic law to take a Philistine bride. Oh, do you hear that? It sounds just like the opening chords of Paradise City. While they were not pleased with Samson's taste in women, his parents eventually agreed to arrange the marriage. When they were heading into Philistine territory, Samson had a run-in with a stray cat. Well, it wasn't really a cat, more of a young lion. The Bible says in Judges 14, 5, and 6, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson, giving him literally superhuman strength to defend himself from the lion's attack. He grabs the lion and just rips it apart. It's a moment not unlike the defeat of the Nemean lion by Greek hero Heracles, known to most of us by his Roman moniker, Hercules. The Greek hero then goes on to skin the lion and wear its hide as a trophy. Samson, on the other hand, simply casts the carcass to the side of the road and doesn't tell anyone about it. Why is this passage important to our discussion of Samson's womanizing tendencies? Because when he passes by the lion's body on the way back into Timnah for his marriage, he notices something that ultimately leads to a foreshadowing of his disastrous relationship with Delilah. Stay with me. Samson sees that bees have formed a hive inside the lion's carcass, so he grabs some honey for a snack because that's what you do in ancient Philistia if you're feeling a bit peckish. The next thing that happens is Samson has essentially a bachelor party. He is given 30 men as companions, I guess because his buddies from Israel, if he had any, didn't want to take part in an interreligious marriage ceremony. Next, Samson offers a challenge. If these 30 men can figure out the meaning of his riddle, he will gift them each with a linen robe and festive garment, which I'm assuming would be something they could wear to the wedding. In my research, I wasn't able to get an estimate for exactly how much this might cost, but even today, dressing 30 men in run-of-the-mill rental tuxedos is going to cost around $4,000. 
So a substantial amount, and we don't know if that's Samson's own money or his father's. At any rate, this is a pretty sizable bet. And if Samson wins, he adds, he demands 30 sets of clothing for himself. The combined minds of 30 men against one seems pretty reasonable to these Philistine groomsmen, so they agree. Samson's riddle, asked in Judges 14.14, is, Out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So, okay, obviously this isn't a knock-knock joke. It's more of a, a puzzle, a word game for them to figure out. And the men can't. So they badger, harass, and threaten Samson's intended bride, her name is not given, until she in turn henpecks the answer out of Samson. Why, it's the honey and the lion, of course, which, if we're being honest, seems to me like a super secret inside joke that no one with Samson could possibly guess, but maybe that's its brilliance. When he learns that the men have used his fiancée against him, he flies into a horrifying rage and kills 30 Philistine men, giving the clothing from the corpses to his 30 groomsmen. Then he decides he doesn't want to marry the woman from Timnah anyway. He leaves, and the woman is married off to one of the groomsmen. But apparently, just one chapter later in Judges 15, Samson seems to forget that he ditched his bride at the altar and heads to her place with a gift. A dozen red roses to apologize for killing her kinsmen? No, a young goat, of course. Now, I do need to point out here that culturally, Samson was more than engaged to the woman at this point. Even though they hadn't been married, she would have been considered his wife. They weren't supposed to sleep together yet, but they were more committed than today's engagement would have been. So maybe Samson wasn't completely crazy in assuming that he still had this girl on the hook. So her dad says he assumes Samson hated her because he left and now she's married to someone else. But hey, by the way, you know what? Her little sister is way cuter anyway. So maybe try again. In response, Samson burns down all of the Philistines' fields, olive groves, and vineyards. All of them. Like the endless feuding of the Hatfields and McCoys, this sparks revenge on the part of the Philistines, of course. They find out that Samson's fury was due to his bride being married off to another man, and naturally they decide that the best course of action is to kill the woman and her father. The ensuing skirmishes that broke out between the Philistines and Israelites got so bad that Samson's own people turned him over to the Philistines just to put an end to the fighting. When they did, Samson took out a whole bunch more of his enemies. It's hard to see past Samson's flaws so far. He's moody, lustful, and seems to have some very serious anger management issues. I don't much like Samson. I don't know a lot of Christians or Bible scholars who do, really. But as with almost everything in Scripture, we need to look at the bigger picture. The Philistines are enemies of Israel, enemies who have oppressed them. And one thing God keeps reminding his people throughout the Old Testament is that he will always make a way to rescue them, even after they have been faithless to him. 
Samson was God's way of doing that in this season. And while I do not believe that God put inside Samson his signature rage, nor this libertine attitude towards women, God, being God, was able to use both to put the Philistines back in their place. Because there's more to the story of Paradise City. I mean, Philistia. Samson goes on to lead Israel for two decades. We don't hear much about how he did it, but we do know that at some point, Judges 16.1 mentions, he slept with a nameless prostitute. Again, a big no-no according to Mosaic law. And then came Delilah. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about exactly how she tricked Samson into giving up his strength, but I am going to point out that the strength was never really in his hair. It's cliche these days, but we know that it really wasn't the ruby slippers that led Dorothy home either. There was something beyond the object itself that gave it power. In Samson's case, his unnatural strength was a gift from God that came upon him when needed. His hair was only an outward sign of his supposed commitment to God, but his actions clearly spoke otherwise. His willingness to tell Delilah essentially how to defeat him was the final nail in his proverbial coffin. He had spent years chasing after his lusts, giving into anger, and refusing to honor God in his heart. And there he was, literally sleeping with the enemy and spilling state secrets to her. Unsurprisingly, this led to Samson's capture by the Philistines, who blinded him. I have to admit, it's a cruel punishment, but one of the things that led to Samson's ultimate defeat were his wandering eyes. So it's poetic justice, if nothing else. In the midst of a pagan festival, the tipsy Philistines demanded that their great prize be paraded before them. The Israelite champion, Samson the Strong, bound and blind. Humbled in every way, truly, his captors didn't realize that he was not only humiliated physically, but his spirit was repentant. It took an extreme situation and his own impending death to make him realize that his faith had been in his own strength his reputation, his own faulty wisdom, the power of his own anger. Still, in Judges 16, 28 through 30, he prayed to God for the strength to one final time destroy his enemies. That strength was given, and Samson upset the pillars holding up the temple. He literally brought the house down on thousands who had played a role in oppressing his people. But isn't God love? Doesn't God say not to kill? It's a simple question with a complicated answer. And there's no good way to concentrate that answer into a quotable soundbite, so we'll save it for another time. Samson's story can easily be a cautionary tale about lust or obedience or pride. It is, of course, but it's also a lesson in faithfulness. Samson and Israel, and all of us really, have chosen unfaithfulness toward God, ourselves, and others time and again. But God remains faithful. It's a part of his nature that cannot be changed. And because he promised, he will always, always come to the aid of his people. Thank you for joining me today. If you like the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on whichever platform you use. And I'd love to hear from you. I can be reached at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com and the new website at retrofittedpodcast.com. 
Last but not least, if you are considering financially supporting the podcast and its associated endeavors for as little as $3 a month, please visit patreon.com slash Rebecca Godlove. As always, be wise and be well. Theme song is Synthwave by Ryan Anderson.